This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, July 8th. I'm Matt Hoysh. And I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, public health encourages vaccinations. County talks housing. A tree is worth a thousand words. And a mountain weather forecast. The state of COVID in San Miguel County and across Colorado remains bittersweet as we continue through our second pandemic summer. The Delta variant is the majority of infections that are occurring in the U.S., particularly in in Colorado. Um, But overall, our numbers have been decreasing. So even after this July 4th had a little bump, but it's not it's not. exponentially growing at this point. That's Dr. Sharon Grundy, San Miguel County medical officer and a physician at the Telluride Regional Medical Center. The Delta variant is a more contagious version of COVID-19. As a state, Colorado just dropped out of the top 10 nationwide when it comes to COVID incident rate. Although during a public health meeting earlier this week, San Miguel County Public Health Director Grace Franklin noted that comes more from cases rising in other states rather than cases decreasing in Colorado. Locally, Grundy notes, case numbers are smoldering. I don't think we've had too many more breakthrough cases, but we've got travelers and the majority of cases are occurring in unvaccinated, the unvaccinated population. When it comes to those unvaccinated members of the population, Grundy says she wants to keep younger folks, those 12 to 25, vaccine curious. And that's really the population that um, that is still at risk for complications from COVID-19 and uh, would benefit from getting vaccinated. Grundy recommends families think about getting the vaccine before young people head back to school or college She notes the full vaccine cycle takes about six weeks, so think ahead. She adds families and children or anyone unvaccinated should continue wearing masks if they are around people outside their household. Another kind of push for families and anybody who's not vaccinated. I had a kind of a a younger person see me the other day who had symptoms and I let them know because they're unvaccinated, they do have to isolate for 10 days. Uh, no matter what a test shows, can't go to work, still has to stay at home. And they were kind of quite shocked by that. And I was like, nope. Whereas if you're vaccinated and you have symptoms, we get to kind of test you and you're kind of back to work or about your business within kind of three days after getting tested. In the first week of July, San Miguel County confirmed eight new positive COVID cases, with seven being local residents. More than half were under 25, with two cases, three-year-old children. This week, the Board of County Commissioners once again discussed the core chronic challenge of San Miguel County, housing. This week's discussion came on the heels of a newly published report from the Northwest Colorado Council of Governments and the Colorado Association of Ski Towns looking at the influx of people migrating to six mountain regions during COVID, including San Miguel County. Kind of the big picture question is, you know, are people staying? And based on the survey responses and and interviews, you know, for the most part, people, yes, they do want to stay. So a lot of the newcomers that came, you know, do want to be there. That's Wendy Sullivan, a longtime housing consultant who worked on the report, which used data from surveys and focus groups speaking to the BOCC. Combined, only about 5% of those that responded indicated a desire to leave in the coming years. 
However, another 15% were uncertain and employer work policies are the primary factor feeding into that. In other words, a lot of the, the relocation that we saw, the primary driver was this increased ability to work from home. The report, Sullivan says, gives a vision for a potential new normal for increased demand on services and housing for the communities studied. County Manager Mike Bordonia acknowledges if there were easy solutions, the problem would already be solved and says the challenge feels more adaptive than technical. It's not as though we can build our way out of this, but that we need to be pursuing a long-term strategy, which involves many pieces. A diversity of approaches is also important. Sullivan points to Breckenridge, for example, as a community that was able to take advantage of a cool market to build housing during the recession. Breckenridge had a lot of land. They had a lot of, uh, they had money available which is always key, and the resources to push forward on development when the private market wasn't. Bordonia notes the county needs to develop long-term funding mechanisms if it wants to make housing moves during the next recession, but that can't be the only approach. In boom times, you know, you're not going to be purchasing a bunch of land. You know, you're, you're going to be looking at other avenues, you know, because it gets expensive, but you're going to be looking at other avenues to um, get the housing built. So if the private market is building housing, Perhaps you have inclusionary zoning, perhaps you have regulations that help get those units built when the market is working in your favor. Bordonia notes housing is the commissioner's number one goal and specifically asks Sullivan if they should bring on a housing director. Sullivan says housing directors tend to be most successful when local governments have a clear vision for what they need them to do. If you're hiring a housing director hoping that they're going to just push housing forward for you, that's not realistic. You need to have the leadership first, you know, at your level, at the, at the elected level, the, the political leadership and preferably, you know, community buy-in. And then your housing director coming in can be much more effective because the one person isn't going to make it all happen. Commissioner Hillary Cooper wonders if another piece of the solution is developing developers to address the shortage of people available to build. I've basically given up. I mean, I've talked to a couple developers specifically here who are interested in helping us work on the problem and when they pencil it out, they walk away. Sullivan notes developing developers won't happen overnight, but adds some potential solutions identified in the study include increasing vocational and technical education programs and apprenticeships to expand the construction labor pool. Other solutions identified in the study include modifying limits on state housing financing programs, modifying local zoning to allow greater density for employee housing, and reallocating revenue to spend on housing. You know, one thing we suggested in the report is, you know, with this kind of new normal coming in and work for homers spending money in your community, perhaps we're not quite as reliant on visitors as we used to be because they're getting high income from their job elsewhere. Maybe take a look at the, you know, tourism and uh, what you spend on promotion. Look at that balance, for example. No decisions came out of this week's county commissioner discussion. The full mountain migration study is available at nwccog.org. Mary Higgins and Molly Daniel are trying to read something. S-W-O-P-E. That doesn't make any sense. Swode, swope. This is 1964. Oh. Did Definitely I? a C in 19. Uh-huh. Yeah, I see that now. But it isn't a book or a sign or a mural. It's a tree. 
specifically carvings on a tree. Higgins and Daniel are with the Telluride Historical Museum and are part of a crew hiking around the Deep Creek Trailhead, showing me a new app the museum developed in partnership with the AHA School for the Arts to document these tree carvings, more formally known as arborglyphs. It's an interesting historic record, and we do think these are historic records of people from a bygone era. Museum Executive Director Kiernan Lannan. In this case, a lot uh, representing the agricultural and ranching history of the area, which for the museum, we just don't have a strong record of, we don't have a lot of resources on. So this is a way to kind of capture that history for us. But there are so, so many arborists in the region that we want to document them. We couldn't do it by ourselves. So we need people's help. Enter the app. The idea is users can take photos of arborglyphs in the region to help the museum catalog them. It's a pursuit that's especially important since the arborglyphs are on living things that won't be around forever. Eventually, they will go away. So if we don't document them now, it might be too late. A ways in, we find a glyph to demo the app on. It's a bit PG-13, a person with a large dent in the trunk jutting out from around the pelvic region. Nonetheless, historically significant. But before Lennon starts, he wants to make one thing very clear. It is illegal to carve in trees, so we do not want people going out and contributing to the historic record. With that, he pulls out his phone and opens the app, which lets him take a photo, attaches a rough location, and has him answer questions, such as, is the glyph visible from the trail, is there any text, and any additional comments. A person, say, wearing a hat, uh, missing a piece of vital anatomy. <laughs> Where a branch used to be. And that's about it. The museum, Lennon says, will screen the photos and make them available for public viewing. They're mostly interested in glyphs from before the mid-60s, Lennon explains. So, none of those A Hearts P or JNS Forever carvings. Shepherds or ranchers, Lennon notes, would often carve on trees for more practical reasons, like wayfinding and keeping track of sheep since there weren't many other options. Maybe you could write it on a piece of paper and try to tuck it somewhere. That could go away, but the tree's not moving. The tree's going to be here. Really happy for the museum and AHA especially. I think this will be a great project for them. Garrett Smith has spent the last 16 or so months working on the Arborglyph app. Smith is the director of science and research at the Telluride Institute and teaches at Western Colorado University. Now that the app is nearly done, not only is Smith happy, but he says... So is his wife. This is our dinner table discussion a lot of how I would get something working and then I'd come out in the field and it would not work out in the field and then I'd go home and stay up all night trying to figure out why it wasn't working out in the field. The app should go live in the near future, Smith says. Lennon notes anyone interested should keep an eye on the museum's website and social media. One other aim in involving the public, he says, is for people to become more aware of the history around them. Everyone goes hiking around here because of the uh, absolutely immense beauty, but there's a lot of history that happened day to day right before you. It worked for Smith. Thanks to his time working on the app, he says, he sees the arborglyphs around him more. Oh, there's one, there's one there, and you never, before it was just noise, and now you really notice it. The app, he hopes, will force people not to miss the trees for the forest.
Astonishing Ajax, booming Bridal Veil, the places we know and love from Telluride, and now the pages of a new book, The Telluride Alphabet, written by Jill Wilson and illustrated by Abby J. Fox. It takes you through kind of Telluride, past and present, um, all the kind of historical aspects of Telluride, the natural aspects that make it so special, um, wildlife, and just really kind of encompasses all that Telluride has to offer. That's Wilson. The book, which will launch this week, is a smorgasbord of colorful drawings, insightful words, and Telluride fun. It was years in the making for Wilson. It came to me in a dream. It was an idea that I had, but really just one night I woke up and all the letters in the alliterative nature of the letters, like Astonishing Ajax and Booming Bridal Veil, they, they all just hit <laughs> at once. She pulled Fox into the project, a printmaker by trade who dabbled in pen drawings during the pandemic. From there, rich, lush, detailed illustrations came into form. When I was thinking about doing illustrations, I didn't want it to be kind of singular. I didn't want to just do what the letter was. I tried to combine a bunch of other things. So like the rainbow page also has Popcorn Alley mm -hmm. and the Columbine page also has pollinators. Mm -hmm. Like I tried to have some more elements. Wilson and Fox note they want the book to be fun for the whole family, a coffee table book or an enjoyable read and adventure for parents and children. When each one, you know, I kind of do a couple of sentences um, that explains, you know, the historical nature of it. And then at the end of each paragraph, it kind of gives like a little local tip or something, you know, like with the Columbine one, you know, at the end, it's like, well, see how many different colors of flowers, Columbines you can find on your hikes around Telluride or, you know, each, each one kind of has, um, you it's know, like a with little the, call to action. Yeah. It's a call to action. <laughs> it's, it's great for like locals and tourists because locals will relate to it and, um, and then, you know, it might even have tourists get excited about something that they might not know um, about in town. The Telluride Alphabet book launch will take place this Sunday, July 11th, from 4 to 6 p.m. at the Transfer Warehouse. There will be book signings, music, and community celebration. Apple. Blueberry. Boysenberry, mud, meat, cream, custard, pumpkin, pot, peach, rhubarb, meringue, key lime, coconut cream. A pie really is only limited by your imagination. And this Monday, anyone with a crust and filling has a chance to show off their skills at the Wilkinson Public Library's pie contest. Contestants must bring their best pie to be judged by, quote, a panel of pie experts. The audience will also judge for appearance, a litany of prizes will be on the line, and everyone who brings a pie will go home with a different treat via a pie raffle. Contestants should drop off their homemade pies between 5 and 6 p.m. on the library's back patio on Monday, July 12th. Judging will begin promptly at 6.01 p.m. One thing is for sure about summer in the San Juans. It's busy, and it's affecting the local environment. According to the Grand Mesa in Compagre and Gunnison National Forests, increased visitation to the area has caused management challenges and safety concerns when it comes to parking, creative campsites, frustration, and environmental impacts. One place being impacted, Blue Lakes. 
The GMUG is looking for community input as part of a visitor use study from the Forest Service in conjunction with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Western Colorado University's Center for Public Lands. The feedback will, in part, be used to determine management options in the area for the future. The GMUG will hold two virtual community meetings to answer questions and receive comments. Meetings will take place on July 22nd and August 3rd at 5.30 p.m. via Zoom. Individuals can also email comments to julie.jackson at usda.gov. KOTO is part of a collaboration with stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition looking at potential solutions to economic mobility through housing across our region. Stories will air over the next several months. Today, we're heading north. The cost of housing has been rising in the Roaring Fork Valley. For some locals already dealing with housing insecurity, COVID-19 was a tipping point. KDNK's Kathleen Shannon reports on a new effort to connect those people to assistance. When you're dealing with the overwhelming stress of trying to find a job, where are kids getting education, where are we going to live, these can be overwhelming days. Jennifer Weary is the executive director of Alpine Legal Services, a nonprofit that uses monetary donations to provide free legal advice and representation in court. This agency has been around for more than 25 years, but the group received five times more calls for housing assistance in May of this year than it did in May 2019. The increase comes even as many face barriers to finding aid, such as lack of access to reliable internet and not speaking English. So what we were finding is that people were too overwhelmed to really navigate the system. They needed personal help. They needed a human. So this March, a group of nonprofits, including Alpine Legal Services, launched Bridging Resources, a helpline operating under Aspen Community Foundation's umbrella as a guide to a pre-existing network of support. When someone calls the line, a bilingual navigator connects the caller to agencies that can help provide food, rental assistance, child care, or other services. So far, most calls come from women who have families and are seeking housing assistance. And an equal number of Spanish speakers and English speakers have called the line. Some of our callers, it's their first time. They have no idea where to go, what to do to ask for help. Jocelyn Rivas is the Bridging Resources Program Coordinator. She handles calls, but can't always field them as they come in. That's when the follow-up process starts, and Rivas says that's a huge part of her job. We do call them twice, different days, different times. We leave a voice message, and then we also send a text. In the program's first 10 weeks, Rivas says 78 callers received assistance, and she's adapted the program to what she's learned so far. Rivas is bilingual, but not all her partner agencies have Spanish-speaking staff. So she's advocated for translation services. She's also expanded her method of follow-up. First, we were just referring people. So we were giving them, you know, a list of places that they can call. And we found out that we actually needed to make the connection between the agency and the caller. Um, so now what we're doing is if somebody calls in, we'll go ahead and call the agency with them. The go-to agency for those facing eviction or those who fear they may soon is Alpine Legal Services. Jenny Weary, who we heard from earlier, recommends that tenants who may have trouble paying rent should start a conversation with their landlords early on. 
She knows that discussion can be difficult, but Weary says landlords are more likely to negotiate with advanced notice. The further upstream we can go to prevent these evictions from ever starting in the first place. That's where we're going to stop the ripple effect of these problems. So bridging resources can help callers navigate the system. But that system offers more band-aids than long-term solutions. Federal eviction moratorium was just extended from the end of June to July 31st. But the cost of living in the Roaring Fork Valley is still rising. It was $1,900 plus utilities, plus water, plus trash plus gas, it came out to over $2,500 or more. Way too much for me. Glenwood Springs resident Sonia started a search for a new home for herself and her two sons after going through a divorce. Soon after securing housing, her dad passed away from COVID-19. And she took a week off work to travel to the funeral, which she also helped pay for. When she got behind on the bills, the Salvation Army paid one month of Sonia's utilities, and she used free legal consultations with Alpine Legal Services to work through her divorce. But still, her pile of bills is mounting. While she's been fighting to hold on to housing... You know, when the attorney asked me that, well, can you even afford it? Like, it's just kind of degrading. Well, yeah, I could have afforded it if I didn't have all this other stuff that happened to me. Jenny Weary says she hears from a lot of people whose financial difficulties are compounding because the cost of living keeps rising. The stories we hear are compelling enough in and of themselves. What we worry most about is the stories we aren't hearing. That's one data point that's hard to measure. Who is still being overlooked or is unwilling to reach out? Weary says that stable housing helps people get and maintain work, provide for family, and more. And a lack of housing contributes to mental health issues. Rivas sees evidence of this in many fur calls through Bridging Resources. Sometimes we're the only ones that they've talked to about, you know, whatever problem they're going through. So a lot of it is about just kind of letting them vent to you or just cry over the phone. Just by listening, you're doing so much. For KDNK and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Kathleen Shannon. Governor Jared Polis is ending the state of emergency he put in place nearly 16 months ago because of the coronavirus pandemic. KOTO Scott Franz has more. In a televised address, Polis says Colorado fared much better than other states in terms of deaths from the virus and did not let it overwhelm hospitals. He says declining case numbers are allowing him to give up his broad emergency powers, which sparked several lawsuits from people accusing him of overstepping. We wore masks, we practiced social distancing, we sacrificed time and holidays with loved ones to keep ourselves and our communities safe. And by and large, it worked. In all, he issued more than 400 executive orders about where Coloradans could eat, which businesses they could shop at, and even how they should worship. Most are now expiring, but rent and unemployment aid will continue. Republicans cheered the announcement, saying they were glad he was turning the page on a dark part of the state's history. I'm Scott Franz in Denver. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight with a low around 50 degrees. Friday should be mostly sunny with a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms and a high in the mid-80s. Friday night calls for mostly clear skies with a low around 50 degrees. Saturday should be sunny with a high in the mid-80s. Saturday night expect mostly clear skies with a low in the mid-40s. This has been the news for Thursday, July 8th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206. 
And now, a personal commentary. Hey, Telluride, good afternoon. Mary Higgins here with the Telluride Historical Museum. Just giving you a shout that we are conducting a free tour Friday, July 9th, 10 a.m., starting at the museum. It is a free tour with the Historical Architecture Review Commission, also known as HARC. On this tour, we're going to visit some popular sites in town that have a lot of loaded history, led by the lovely Jana Wenzel and Kiernan Lannan. They'll be your guides through the area and the town's history. To kick it off, we do have a quiz question for you, or I guess I would say it's more of a a trivia question. Uh, And if you want to get the answer to it, you can come on the tour and Kiernan will answer it for you. So this photo is going to be on our social media on Instagram and Facebook. Take a look at the photo and tell us who owns the horse in this picture. There's your trivia question. Again, Mary Higgins from the Telluride Historical Museum. Thanks for listening. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.